Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. This week, Anne pitched If Beale Street Could Talk as a case study in adapting a literary novel to the screen. This critically acclaimed 2018 film was directed by Barry Jenkins from a screenplay he adapted from James Baldwin's 1973 novel of the same name. This is one of the more adult, R-rated films we've studied, so you will hear some strong language in both clips and in our discussion. Anne will start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to this powerful story. Anne? Thanks, Kim. Well, this is a complex, multi-layered literary story that certainly looks like and is billed as a love story. It does meet all of the obligatory scenes and conventions of a courtship story, though some of them in kind of a modified form. As with many love stories, there is an internal genre of worldview. And as with love stories, we've looked at where the lovers are prevented by outside forces from fulfilling their commitment to each other. There are also strong society elements at play. What's more, both the novel and the movie are told in a non-linear sequence. So your definition of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff is going to change depending on how you read the sequence of events and on which genre you decide to follow. So for the sake of simplicity, I've decided to focus on the worldview, maturation, internal genre, and stack the story events up in linear time. So I took the story apart and restacked it in what would have been linear time, rather than in the nonlinear order the movie and the novel both employ. So the genre. The 15 core scenes from the protagonist's point of view seem to turn more on the values of naivete and sophistication about racism and its negative effects on love between Black people in 1973 New York. So the worldview genre is the one that I tried to fit into this delineation. Please keep in mind that this skeletal structure barely touches on many of the really powerful moments in the story. Jari is going to cover several of them shortly. Leslie will be looking at the story from a couple of other angles after that. And I know Kim will be making a strong case later on for the global genre of society. So the beginning hook. When Tish and Fawny fall in love, Tish wants to become part of Fawny's adult life in New York City, learning to see active racism clearly for the first time in a relatively sheltered life. When a white man hits on her and Fawny knocks him down, drawing the attention of a vindictive cop, Tish must acknowledge the power of a racist justice system and meekly accept the cop's bigoted behavior, or else stand up for Fawny and risk the cop's retaliation. She stands up to the cop, but Fani tells her that she has now helped put them both in danger. In the middle build, the cop retaliates by framing Fani for a brutal rape, which he did not commit because he was clear across Manhattan at the time, and Fani is imprisoned. When the rape victim, whose testimony is key to Fani's release, flees to Puerto Rico, Tish, now pregnant, must decide whether to risk her pregnancy and her health by continuing to fight for Fawny or allow her family to take on the fight so she can offer her real gift, the love and hope she shares by visiting Fawny every day in prison. 
She accepts her whole family's help, and her mother goes to Puerto Rico to confront the rape victim, but the traumatized woman refuses to be involved. The family's last hope for Fawny's release is bail in the ending payoff. When bail is set unreasonably high, the whole family joins forces to raise the money legally and illegally. But when Fawny's father is fired for stealing, he loses all hope and dies by suicide, the news of which sends Tish into labor. With a new baby to care for, she must decide whether to continue visiting the prison every day while raising a child or accept that the racist system that incarcerated Fawny will never let him go. In the movie, she continues visiting him. In the book, her decision is not shown. I'll have the rest of the editor's six core questions in the show notes. Thank you, Anne. That was wonderful. So you're looking at the differences between the novel and the film, and you're going to dig into why you feel the novel is better. So walk us through that. Okay. Well, this season, my goal has been to look at novel-to-film adaptations and try to figure out what, if anything, novels can do that film stories can't do or don't do very well. Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk has a lot to say on this subject. First of all, let me just preface this by saying, if you're interested in discovering this novel, which I highly recommend, I can enthusiastically endorse the audiobook version read by Bonnie Turpin. The novel draws deeply on the particular voices of African Americans of the Great Migration living in Harlem in the 1970s, where the parents' generation still have a bit of the South in their voices. The Beale Street of the title isn't in New York City, but in Memphis, Tennessee, the center of blues music in the early 20th century. Now, I didn't grow up around those voices, so hearing them read aloud was not only a pleasure, but it really helped bring the first-person narrative and the dialogue to life. So now, on to the question of how or whether the novel is better than the movie and what I, as a writer, take away from that. I want to start with this. We are novelists and memoirists here on the podcast, and we've always aimed the show primarily at fellow novelists. When asked why we analyze movies instead of novels, which is a question we do get asked quite a bit, our answer has always been because movies are good vehicles for studying story structure overall in a convenient two-hour form. But by always analyzing movies, we've tended to lose sight of the novel form itself and to tacitly reinforce the idea that a good story with an easy, comprehensible story form and an easy, comprehensible movie are exactly the same thing, a Venn diagram that's a single circle. My aim for some time now has been to question that stance, so that's what I'm going to do here. If Beale Street Could Talk is a very good movie by most measures. It was critically acclaimed, it was nominated for loads of major awards, and it won a lot of them, including one Oscar. It made back its cost, plus a little more, and it has a Metacritic score of 87 and a 95% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes from among professional film critics. The audience reaction, however, was a bit lower, 75% or so, with most of the negative reviews centering on words like slow, boring, and nothing happens. And this clearly signals to me that this movie just isn't for everyone. Fair enough, but that's exactly what I want to look at. All of us have thoughts on the show today about the extent to which this film works as a story. It takes huge swaths of text directly from the novel. It's true to the novel in most ways, and Barry Jenkins, the screenwriter and director, has said in several interviews that he is devoted to Baldwin's work and wanted to be as faithful to it as he possibly could, while still being a filmmaker. 
Here's a quote from Doreen Saint-Felix, a film critic for The New Yorker. She says of Baldwin, in his breathtaking book-length essay on film, The Devil Finds Work, Baldwin acknowledges that the work of adaptation involves, quote, doing considerable violence to the written word, unquote. The violence was necessary, he writes, transformative like what goes on in a forge. Transcendent filmmakers don't shy away from the high temperatures of creation. Now, Barry Jenkins himself has pointed out that the novel might take 20 hours to read while the film takes less than two to watch. And he says, so where do those other 18 hours go? This is the fundamental question about adaptation. Jenkins talks about the luxury of a novel where the author has all the time and space they need to go deeply into characters' thoughts and feelings and their own, the author's, philosophies. Movies can't do that. Even a long multi-part film series can't really do that because the viewing audience just won't put up with it. It's not what movies are for. And understand, when I say movies, I'm also talking about television shows, series, anything filmed. Now, there's nothing wrong with following the heroic journey structure with an arch plot involving a central protagonist who has a clear arc. Obviously, that's what we talk about all the time here. Whether you dream of being optioned for a movie or just want to write a novel that is as smooth and effortless to read as a movie is to watch, here's some advice from a good book I found called Adaptation, Studying Film and Literature by John Desmond and Peter Hawks. Number one. Your novel will be under 300 pages or under 80,000 words, but over 15,000 words. Too long, a filmmaker would have to cut a lot of it, and too short, they would have to make stuff up to fill in the time. If Beale Street Could Talk comes in at 297 pages and just over 60,000 words, so we can check that box. Your cinematic novel will be written in scenes and have the three-act structure of a beginning, a middle, and an end because that's how movies are built. And that's what readers of popular movie-like novels expect. Beale Street is written in two parts. The first is 90% of the book. The second is the remaining 10%. Its timeline is nonlinear, and its scenes accordingly aren't clearly delineated. There are no chapter breaks either. Scenes, such as they are, are long and conversational, and the movie adaptation, being faithful to the text, has some of the longest scenes I can recall in any recent movie. I'm sure this is what resulted in some of those one-star user reviews about long and boring. I just want to clarify, I did not find them long and boring. I thought this movie was wonderful. Number three, your text for your movie-like novel will ideally not depend on your authorial voice or your literary style to deliver its message. And it will not depend on tone, such as sarcasm or irony. That kind of strictly literary textual stuff does not translate to the screen. Now, Baldwin's novel is generally regarded as a masterpiece of authorial voice stemming in part from his upbringing by a preacher. You can hear the preaching in his language. What's more, to understand the novel, we must understand Baldwin's tone of anger as well as his fierce love and sensuality. Number four, your movie-like novel won't lean heavily on things like literary allusions, philosophical ideas, or abstract meditations. None of that is story per se, and it is unfilmable. Now, Baldwin's novel does only a little of this, and mostly it's in the dialogue, so he gets another check mark here. Number five, symbolism, if any, will not lie at the heart of your story. Many great movies are rife with symbolism, provided that it's all visual in the background, but symbolism is lost on general audiences. If stripping it out breaks your story, you're not writing cinematically. 
There's quite a bit of symbolism in Beale Street, especially around Fawney's sculpture, but the story doesn't depend heavily on it, so we can give him half a check mark here, too. Number six, your cinematic novel should not be written in the first person or use a complex combination of points of view. The only way to work with that in film is the dreaded voiceover. Beale Street is written in the first person, and the point of view is not simple. Tisha's perspective transcends what she could have witnessed or known about. Barry Jenkins's film, accordingly, depends on voiceover. And finally, number seven, your novel will not depend on detailed historical information to work. Apparently, movies that lay on too much historical realism tend to lose sight of their story. Beale Street was written almost 50 years ago, so it's historical now, and the film version has been criticized in some quarters, believe it or not, for lingering too much on period wardrobe and set design. Go figure. I thought they were both wonderful. So there you go. Besides the story grid basics of choosing a genre and sticking to it with all that means, if you want to write a novel that reads like an easy movie, follow those seven guidelines. They'll be in the show notes for you. But what if you don't, as James Baldwin clearly didn't? Even though, yes, Barry Jenkins made this novel into a fine movie without desecrating it by changing it too much, the movie was not exactly boffo box office. It was not, I'll say it again, for the mythical everyone. What if you do want to write longer than 300 pages? What if the story you want to tell arises from philosophical and political beliefs or revolves around symbolism? What if you want to tell a story that has multiple points of view or a complex nonlinear structure without traditional scene or chapter breaks? What if you like lyrical writing and a strong literary voice? Well then, here's my recommendation. Try to break away from equating a good novel with a slick, easy movie. Novels can do more, and sometimes they should, because whatever they do have in common with movies, it's probably safe to say that these days, movies do those things better. I think it's up to some of us to go deeper into characters' thoughts, to take more time with our story, our language, our literary style. I think those of us who want to examine deep ideas through the medium of fiction should do exactly that. Does this mean I think we should all jump ship and abandon sound story structure? No, of course not. But as I said last week about Jupiter ascending, I'd rather aim for the moon and miss in terms of perfect delivery on the expectations of that mythical every reader than tame my story ideas down to some template because I'm afraid to break rules. If Beale Street Could Talk is a beautiful movie, but it's an even better novel, go read it and find out why. Wonderful, Anne. I love this so much. And I love the freedom that this story showcases and the power to tell the story that is most important to you in the way that it needs to be told. That power of intent and knowing your definition of success and how to measure it. It's given me a lot to think about. So thank you for that. So now let's hear from Jari about the love story that we have. Thanks, Kim. What I really loved about this movie is the way it reaches down your throat and grabs your heart right from the beginning. At no point does the story let off the gas in terms of the love story. You yearn to see Fonny and Tish together right away. And this particular scene kicks it all off. I hope that nobody has ever had to look at anybody they love through glass. Hey, 
I should have said already, we're not married. That means more to him than it does to me, but I understand how he feels. Finally, is 22. I'm 19. I'm glad, honey. I'm glad. Don't you worry. <laughs> you tell my daddy? Not yet. You tell your folks? Not yet, but don't worry about them. I just wanted to tell you first. A baby. What you gonna do? I'm gonna do just like I've been doing. I'm gonna work up to just about the last month, and then Mama and Sis will take care for me. You ain't got to worry. In any way, I'll have you out of here before then. Sure about that? I'm always sure about that. I love you. I love you too. This is one of the most masterful scenes about love and longing that I have ever witnessed. It's also a wonderful intro scene for the theme of the movie, stated brilliantly by Tish at the beginning. After this, we're just off to the races. Even the voiceover, along with the dialogue, just hits you in the solar plexus that you gasp for air, wincing in pain, waiting for the next punch to come. I mean, I'm tearing up a little just thinking about it. Me too, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, that first part, beginning hook of this film is just masterful. This season, I'm looking at movies through the lens of love and how love stories can be used as an external genre for memoir. So Anne, really thanks for picking this film and book. It's on my list to read because I do think it's a masterwork in how to use a love story to give narrative drive to addressing the real big issues that he does in this, this book and this film. The situation that our young lovers find themselves in is heartbreaking. It's made worse by, which what we'll find out later, the institutional systematic racism that put Fani in jail. On top of that, the main hinderer to their love is Fani's mother, and the dialogue encapsulates her as a God-fearing mother who prays every day that her boy will be released from the dungeon that he is in. Even though she is only in one scene, you feel her throughout the whole movie. And I can't say enough about the fabulous dialogue and the tender scenes between Tish and Fani. Those scenes interwoven between the stark reality of Fani being in jail raises the stakes by powers of 10. You feel for these two lovers that were torn apart. You yearn to see them reunited, but then you also fear that since the world is literally against them in so many ways, that it's not going to happen. But just when you think that maybe the whole world is against them and there's no love left, you get this scene that gives you some hope. You don't got to worry about your neighbors. All you got down here is sweatshops. And the place on the ground floor, though, it's legit. So other than it being a fire trap, what's the catch? Catch? I mean... No offense, Levy, but we've been looking for a long time. Don't seem to me like there's a reason to treat two Negroes so nice-like. I mean, clearly we ain't got a pot nor much of a drink to make piss with. Come on, my French. Look, man, with me, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. I, I dig people who love each other. Black, white, 
green, purple, it doesn't really matter to me. Just spread the love, you know? Oh, so you a hippie now? What <laughs> now? <laughs> I ain't take you for no hippie, man. <laughs> nah, man, I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm just my mother's son. And sometimes that's all that makes the difference between us and them. We all wish that every human was as thoughtful and kind as Levy. It's the statement of the anti-theme almost, the counterpoint to the whole movie, what we all should strive for. And, you know, there is another love story of sorts in the society domestic subplot with Tish's family. There are several scenes that capture how far Tish's family and Fonny's dad, strangely enough, not his mother, will go not only to help Tish, but to also prove that Fonny is innocent. The most heartwarming scene is when Tish's mother, Sharon, flies to Puerto Rico to find Fonny's accuser. That's an interesting way to show a mother's love for her daughter. Sharon knows that the world is against Tish and Fonny, as well as her unborn baby. Her love for her daughter drives her to Puerto Rico to confront her son-in-law's accuser in this scene. How long were you in New York? Too long. Children still there? Listen, leave my children out of this. How'd you come back here? If it happened to you, what would you do? Daughter, I was a woman long before you was a woman. Remember that? And I know, I know you pay for the lies you tell. You sent a man to jail, one you ain't never even seen before. Just 22 years old, young, and he wants to marry my daughter. I did see him. You saw him in the police lineup. That was the only time you saw him. What makes you so sure? I've known him all his life. One thing I can tell, lady. You ain't never been raped. They took me down there. And they told me to pick him out. So that's what I did. I picked him out. But it was... It happened in the dark. You saw Alonzo in the light. I saw enough. Daughter, in the name of God, get off of me. Daughter, please. Get off of me. Get off of me. No, 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 Get off of me. Por favor, por favor. Get off me. It confirms what Sharon has thought of all along, that Fonny's accuser was told to pick Fonny out. Her sudden cries and sobbing show how distraught she is for hiding the truth. It's also on theme and raises the stakes another power of 10. I just wanted to share what Barry Jenkins himself had to say about that scene, which is straight from the novel. This is a quote from an interview in the Atlantic Monthly, and among other things, it speaks to the writer's eye for scene-type similarities between wildly different stories. He's referring here to Regina King, who plays Tish's mother and won an Oscar for it. Here's what he says. Someone described it to me as Regina being like Jeremy Renner in The Hurt Locker, sitting there trying to defuse the bomb, and she cuts the wrong damn wire. Oh, yes, indeed. Isn't that awesome? Oh, man, yeah, that's a perfect way to characterize that. You really feel for everyone, and in a respectful way, because, I mean, she was raped and traumatized. It just shows the injustice of everything just all around. Everyone's a victim here, and you, it, your heart just sinks. We now realize that Tish and Fani may never be together, and our heart sinks. It seems hopeless until the last scene where we see Fani, Tish, and his son, Alfonso Jr., 
visiting in jail. Finally, the lovers are reunited, but the reunification is bittersweet since it's clearly not fair given that the deck is stacked against them. Fawny took a plea like so many men, which seems like a perfect win-but-lose option so he can one day hold Tish and his son in his arms. If I were to characterize this type of love story, it would be one of pure love torn apart. It's masterfully done and used to great effect as a story spine that drives the message of the racism that African Americans face even today. For writers, it's a great example of an external genre giving the story enough narrative drive to hold the weight of the message. Hidden Figures did this in the same way by using the performance professional genre to hold the discrimination that Catherine Goebel, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn faced while working at NASA. So if you find yourself wanting to tackle a big problem in your writing, think about how you can build a story around it. Use an external genre that gives it enough narrative drive to hold the big idea you're trying to get across, just like James Baldwin did in If Beale Street Could Talk. Thank you, Jari. That's a really cool way to think about it. It's like applying specificity begets universality through genre. And I can see that at work in other stories. Stories where it's as though the plot is about one thing, but what it's really about and what it really means to us is something else, or at least something more. It makes me think of you know Thelma and Louise or Saturday Night Fever, To Kill a Mockingbird. And Saturday Night Fever and To Kill a Mockingbird are both global worldview maturation stories as well. So that's another interesting takeaway for me. So thank you for all of that. Now let's go to Leslie. Okay, I'm talking today about The Gift Expressed. Now, Sean describes The Gift Expressed as a choice moment when the protagonist expresses their special gift in a way that is an active choice from their crisis question. So they've metabolized the shock of the turning point progressive complication of the story, and the protagonist must decide how they will live their life in the future. This is usually the climax of the story, and it comes in the ending payoff. Here are some other ways to think about and understand the gift expressed. The gift expressed can be seen as the new strategy the protagonist adopts once their initial strategy fails. They have one way of solving problems that's worked for them in the past, but when that fails, or as here, the means is taken away, the protagonist must express their individual gift, which involves some kind of sacrifice, if they're going to salvage success in pursuit of their conscious object of desire. You might also think about this moment as the resurrection from Christopher Vogler's The Writer's Journey. The all-is-lost moment of the middle build leads to a decision, but the gift expressed is about whether the protagonist can hold on to that lesson they learned then and apply it in the future. In other words, was it a fluke or has the protagonist really changed? In The Virgin's Promise, I see this moment as a combination of wanders in the wilderness and chooses her light. Wanders in the wilderness is a crisis moment. The protagonist has abandoned the dependent world, and the question for the climax is whether the protagonist can stand on their own two feet. In other words, it's one thing to practice individual expression in secret, but can you do it in the light of day? So let's see how this plays out for Fawny and Tish and how it operates in their story. I'm going to talk about Fawny first because his journey impacts and informs Tish's. 
In the beginning hook, Tish tells us that Woodcraft saved Fawny from the death that awaited the children of our age. Kids were told they weren't worth shit, and everything they saw around them proved it. But Fawny had his art and Tish's friendship, and that was proof enough against it. In the middle build, Fawny tells Daniel there are two things in his life he needs, wood and stone and Tish. In other words, he can survive and put up with the world as it is so long as he has his individual expression and love. Now, when he's deprived of both, what does he do? Well, he holds out in jail because he believes that justice might prevail, that Tish and her family might succeed in their efforts to free him. In the ending payoff, there's a scene where Fawny lies in bed in jail, remembering or imagining working with Wood. He seems to realize that individual expression isn't just about what you share with the world, because that can be taken from you. It has to be more than that. Now, this revelation fortifies him for learning that the effort to get Victoria to tell the truth has failed. He tells Tish that he's going to build a table that their family is going to eat off of for a long time. And this seems to fortify Tish for facing life as it is and adjusting her goals to survive. So in the past, Fawny has solved problems and endured the world as it is by giving and receiving love and through his individual expression. When those are taken from him, he must decide if he can draw strength from within himself. What exactly is the source of the love and individual expression? And he must remember that they are within him. So for Tish, in the beginning hook, given the odds, how is she going to manage? How is she going to raise a son? What is she going to do? Well, Tish's answer is, will get you out. This is a naive hope and trust that the world will make sense, that justice will be done. In the middle build, when she has to metabolize the bad news that Victoria is in Puerto Rico, Tish has already been fortified because her mom explains that she's not alone. Love is what brought you here, and if you trusted it this far, don't panic now. Trust it all the way. Tish finds evidence in remembering and securing the loft. Fawny can see the possibility in that loft even when she can't. Levy's decency and Hayward's determination seem to provide hope and she can continue to trust. Now, in the ending payoff, when that effort fails and Victoria cannot face returning to New York, what is Tish going to do? Trust that things will work out isn't enough at this point. Tish must tell Fawny, and his key message fortifies her for what's to come. Tish realizes we have to live the life we're given so that our children can be free. So in the past, Tish has solved problems by trusting that things will work out as they should. And in part, this is a result of the love and support she receives from her family. When she can no longer trust that things will work out the way she hoped, she must face the world as it is. And she does. So, Leslie, what is your take on the genres at play here? What genre do you perceive as the global and what genres are companions and subplots? I agree with Anne that we have a global worldview shift happening here. And it 
It's definitely what Sean would call squishy. Reasonable minds could disagree about whether Tish is having a disillusionment or a maturation arc. Now, I think the difference there comes down to what you bring to the story at the moment you receive it. But one thing I've been thinking about lately is what's happening when you have a primarily non-linear story. Now, I'm not talking about a flashback or two, but when most of the events are revealed out of order. I first talked about this in our Jane Eyre episode. When the writer breaks structure in this way, it pulls the reader out of the narrative dream of the story. Now, not haphazardly, it's still a story, and we can still identify the landmarks of story structure. But usually when this happens, the writer has a point that's beyond the story. Now, interestingly to me, we are deeply immersed in Tish and Fawny's world and community, even as we're shown another episode from their lives, breaking the linear storytelling. It's as if someone, like the ghosts from A Christmas Carol, are showing us particular events to help us see something we would have missed if they had given us the straight story. The non-linear structure changes how we make sense of the events and what they mean to us. So this is not about the protagonist's journey, because they experienced it linearly. So it changes what the events mean to us. Every new scene changes what we know and what we think we know about the story, but also the world and the circumstances. It causes us to reflect more than a typical story would on our own lives and actions. At least that's my experience, and I think I'm not alone in that. It feels as though the reader is on their own worldview revelation journey, one in which they lack key information needed to make a wise decision, which is why I connected this to nonfiction and thought this might be big idea fiction. So what's the point? This brings me back to our discussion from two weeks ago about different types of love stories. I'm in working hypothesis mode here, trying to figure some things out. So definitely explore this on your own and see what makes sense to you. Perhaps one of the differences between a more straightforward courtship love story like Sense and Sensibility and ones like Brokeback Mountain and If Beale Street Could Talk is the question the reader asks. Conventional courtship love raises the question, will the lovers commit? Brokeback Mountain and If Beale Street Could Talk seem to ask, should they try given the obstacles they face? And those obstacles are what bring that society aspect into the story. So in a conventional love story, the biggest obstacle seems to be within the lovers themselves. But for Ennis and Jack and Tish and Fawny, There is no question in my mind that absent the system that prevents their being together, those lovers would commit. And we get that feeling pretty early on. The lovers are soulmates. They're meant to be together, and they know it too. So if we assume all of that is true, I wonder if one reason for the differences between the ending in the novel and that of the film come down to perspective. 
What I mean is, if the question is, should people like Tish and Fawny pursue love in spite of the system, and maybe also whether Sharon and Joseph were right to shelter Tish from the world as it is. So in essence, maybe the question is, should subjugated people choose love? Now, with an open ending in the novel, James Baldwin doesn't offer a clear answer in 1973. But Barry Jenkins in 2018 suggests, in hindsight, they should choose love and that we're all better off because people like them did. Now, that's just my take on the story. Baldwin and Jenkins wouldn't necessarily agree. But a story like this seems intended not to tell us what to think, as to invite us to think. That's excellent, Leslie. So now let's shift to Valerie and let's hear about empathy. Okie dokie. This week, I'm continuing my study of empathy, as Kim said, and how it's created. As I may have mentioned already, empathy is an essential element in stories because it's what gets us to connect emotionally with the protagonist. When I say empathy, I mean that the reader has to specifically empathize with the protagonist. She can empathize with other characters, but she must empathize with the protagonist. Empathy is like the secret sauce (laughs) that grabs a reader and makes her root for the protagonist. And empathy, of course, is not sympathy. Empathy means relatability. Can the reader relate to the protagonist on an emotional level? Does she know what it's like to feel the way the protagonist feels? Sympathy means likability. Does the reader like the protagonist or not? While empathy is essential, sympathy is optional. Although, let's be honest, it helps. (laughs) Last week, we heard a quote from Sean where he explained that to create empathy at the macro level, we need to use the heroic journey. To create it on the micro level, we need to clearly articulate the protagonist's objects of desire. Well, what happens with stories like If Beale Street Could Talk that don't follow the heroic journey? Can a writer develop empathy without it? I think the answer is yes, because Tish is most definitely a character we can empathize with. Although I suspect it's easier to use the heroic journey because empathy is built into the structure but it isn't strictly necessary. Hey, Valerie. Yeah. Can you expand more on that, creating empathy outside the hero's journey? It's a very powerful thing, this empathy construct, and I would hate to have to always have to use the hero's journey to kind of make it happen. Yeah, in fact, that's that's what I plan to do. Um, that's the whole rest of my presentation. <laughs> okay, so the, the question that I asked myself then was, how how did the writers here create empathy. Well, first, Tish's objects of desire are crystal clear. She wants Fanny to be released from prison. She needs to mature. The audience can easily relate to both want and need here, and because they're so well-defined, we know exactly what we're cheering for. But I think we need to take it a little further than simply identifying the objects of desire. I think we need to articulate why our protagonist wants and needs the things that she wants and needs. Tish wants Fawny to be released because one, he's innocent, and two, she loves him and wants to build a life with him. Now, those are powerful reasons to root for Fawny's exoneration. But she needs to mature because 
She's so naive that unless she matures, even if Fanny does get out, their relationship will fail. All right, that's the objects of desire and the big meta why taken care of, as, as Kim would say. But is there more to creating empathy than that? And yeah, I think there is. Empathy means that we can relate to a character, but how exactly is that relationship created? Well, it's through the character development. <laughs> Let me explain. Character is revealed through the actions the protagonist makes under pressure. This is true in stories because this is true in life. You've heard the adage, actions speak louder than words, right? Well, that's what I'm talking about here. Let me give you an example, a hypothetical real life example. Let's say you and your colleague have to talk to your boss about a difficult situation. Perhaps uh, you both feel you deserve more money. You want to raise. Your colleague nominates you to have the conversation, but promises he will back you up. So in you go to the meeting, it's challenging and confrontational. Your boss then questions your colleague who says that it was all your idea and he's quite happy with the salary that he has. So while your colleague said he would support you, which would indicate bravery, his actions reveal him to be a coward. So how do we reveal our characters? Well, that's where the turning point crisis and climax come in. The turning point throws the protagonist into crisis. She's under pressure and must make a choice. And that decision that she makes is going to reveal who she is. Tish is faced with one incredible crisis after another. Time after time, her character is revealed to be that of a strong, brave, loyal woman with integrity. Naive, yes, but all these other things are true as well. She is very easy to empathize with, and really any one of the qualities would have been enough. This is one of the reasons why, for me, the ending was a bit disappointing, but I'll talk to that in a minute. Robert McKee says that to create empathy, the writer must expose a core of goodness or humanity in the protagonist. Even if the character is nasty, there must be something of good in him because we can't relate to pure evil. And this is what Save the Cat is all about. Blake Snyder recommends having your protagonist do something good early in the story so that the reader will connect. But there's a couple of caveats to that. The something good has to flow naturally from the story and it has to be relevant to the story. If Tish had literally saved a neighbor's cat from the tree, sure, we'd know that she was kind, but it doesn't in any way prepare her for the obstacle she's about to face and it doesn't have anything to do with the film. Now that might sound like a bizarre example, but unless you take time to consider why Snyder is making these suggestions, you won't really be creating empathy. Okay. Now to the ending of Beale Street. I think we have an opportunity here to talk about the other side of empathy, which is catharsis. Once we've gotten our readers to emotionally engage with a story, we must also give them an opportunity to release that emotion and return to homeostasis. Beale Street's negative ending robs the audience of catharsis, and that, in my opinion, is dangerous territory it runs the risk of leaving the audience dissatisfied. Let's think about it logically. As writers, we'll spend a great deal of time and effort getting our audience to make an emotional investment into the story we're telling. That investment has to mean something. If we create a situation where the reader experiences heightened emotions, 
you know, they're, they're excited, nervous, they're thrilled or terrified or anxious and so on. We have to give them a chance to come down off that high. That's part of what the ending payoff does. Stories don't have to end happily, but they do have to provide catharsis. Positive and ironic endings will provide catharsis, but purely negative endings don't. And in my opinion, Beale Street ends completely negatively. The protagonist we've come to care about has gone from a vibrant young woman to a single mother who is merely surviving. All that strength and bravery is now needed just to get through the day. In that last visit with Fani, Tish is the embodiment of hopelessness. Yes, it seems that they have a date for when Fani will come home. At least I think that's what Alonzo keeps writing. But the date doesn't provide any particular amount of joy for either Fani or Tish. It's not something that they're anticipating or looking forward to. Instead, there's a sense of sadness and despair. I mean, I can only assume that date is quite a ways in the future. Those emotions of sadness and despair are shared with the audience, and the film ends on a low note. Now, of course, look, I understand the context of this story. I am not expecting sunshine and roses. I mean, that would not ring true. It wouldn't be satisfying. And it would make light of a really serious situation, which is the very last thing we want to do. What I'm suggesting is that in order to provide catharsis, some glimmer of hope could have been highlighted. I mean, they're already in the story, but Tish doesn't see them and we need her to see them. Remember, we as the audience have connected emotionally to her. Stories teach us about change. So through her, we are learning how to handle this extremely difficult situation. If she gives in to hope and despair, so do we. Instead, we need her to recognize Alonzo, the lawyer, and the man who rented the room to them as hope for the future. We need her to believe that not everyone is like that cop. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't happen, and Tish's last voiceover combined with the visit to Fani leaves us feeling that nothing will ever change or improve, and there's no point in even trying. All that emotion we'd built up following Fani's case and their love story has nowhere to go. There is no catharsis. I'd like to just interject here something that Doreen St. Felix said in her New Yorker review of the film. She says, at the end of Baldwin's novel, Tish and Fonny's baby is born wailing. Fonny's father, whose boss has discovered him stealing money to help pay for Fonny's trial, kills himself. Jenkins reportedly shot a version of that scene, but later decided to omit it. Had he included it, Beale Street would have been a vastly different and perhaps better film. It would also have given us more of the pain that we've already endured. Instead, inside of Jenkins's love story, we get, for a moment, to trust. I think ending the story this way is very important. To me, it seems like we must experience this sense of being trapped and helpless and hopeless and feeling that nothing will ever change or improve. To me, that is what the story is about. And I don't think that a tidier ending would do that job. Yeah, I'm not talking about a tidier ending. I'm, what I'm talking about is an opportunity for catharsis. Like a tidy ending at the end of this movie would have been completely unsatisfying. It would have just been, quote unquote, a Hollywood ending, which would not have worked for anybody. What I mean is the fact that it ends so completely on such a low note leaves the audience on a low note. And I think if Tish had 
seen a glimmer of hope, then her role then as Alonzo's mom would have been to pass that hope on to future generations because she did have it. So I just think that there's an opportunity missed there to provide a cathartic ending for the audience. And all that emotion that we had and that was created by this very powerful story is has nowhere to go. That's all I meant. Uh, well, Valerie, I, I'd like to take this on a little bit because I agree that neither the novel nor the film offers catharsis. I do not disagree with you. Now, I'm not a Baldwin scholar, but I've spent quite a bit of time with the novel and with reviews and analyses of it and the movie. And catharsis, let's just clarify, literally means cleansing. And I would say that I experienced a kind of post-story catharsis if there is any such thing. Again, I am totally not disagreeing with you about the, the absence of catharsis within the story. I left the text, both times I went through it, more haunted than cleansed. And to the extent to which I was willing to let its truth sink in and take root in the weeks following my first reading of the novel, I've been gradually more awakened by it. Then when I started watching the movie the other day, I started crying from the opening scene and basically kept crying. It was like catharsis was delayed until my third trip through the story. If I absolutely had to guess what Baldwin's intention was, I imagine he'd probably tell the reader, you don't get off that easy. I'm not going to do your internal house cleansing for you. I think he specifically and deliberately withholds catharsis because he specifically and deliberately wants the reader to keep working on the very problematic issues that this story is at its heart really about. In this respect, the book might be what Leslie has so brilliantly termed a work of big idea fiction. Now, Barry Jenkins, the screenwriter and director, has softened that complete withholding of catharsis a little by changing the ending to say that Fawny took a plea deal and carrying us through about four or five more years as Tish and little Fonny Jr. continued to visit him in prison. But I'd like to have us all listen to the last two sentences of the novel. Fonny is working on the wood, on the stone, whistling, smiling, and from far away, but coming nearer, the baby cries and 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 cries. Cries like it means to wake the dead. Some critics interpret that as a sign that Fawny, who's been beaten and put into solitary confinement at this point in the story, doesn't or won't survive the death of his father. Each time I've gone through the ending of the story, the ambiguity of hope and despair remains the same. It's balanced on the razor's edge, unresolved, left to me as the reader to keep thinking. Yeah, that's it's stunning. And I it's, think it's so interesting that the novel ends even lower than the film. And I really appreciate that analysis, Anne, about how Baldwin doesn't want to do our, you know, our cleansing for us. And he withholds catharsis on purpose. It feels like a cautionary tale for the audience this is what happened. And if you don't demand change, this is what will continue to happen. And I think that is what goes with that haunting feeling that you're talking about, Anne. Because we don't experience a definitive ending, it's almost as though the audience is faced with the crisis, climax, and resolution. The end of the story is our turning point progressive complication that asks the question, so what are you going to do? Even though I can technically see the love story elements, I never once thought of the story as a love courtship story. It never seemed like the question to me. 
from the very first opening shot where we see this on-screen text, it signaled society to me. And the text says, Beale Street is a street in New Orleans where my father, where Louis Armstrong and the jazz were born. Every black person born in America was born on Beale Street, born in the black neighborhood of some American city, whether in Jackson, Mississippi or in Harlem, New York. Beale Street is our legacy. This novel deals with the impossibility and the possibility, the absolute necessity to give expression to this legacy. Beale Street is a loud street. It is left to the reader to discern a meaning in the beating of drums. And it references James Baldwin. So because Fawny and Tish commit early on, the life values don't ever feel like love or hate, that attraction, repulsion, avoidance, bouncing back thing. But to me, it feels all about power and impotence. It's almost as if the love story is part of the specific setting that's required for the society story to play out. And when it comes to the controlling idea and theme, I still see love as a big meta takeaway for the story. I would say especially in the ending of the film, but it's not the only one. The cautionary tale seems to be in line with that negative society story, which our kind of general statement is tyrants beat back revolutions by co-opting the leaders of the underclass. In this case, we see this play out in a microcosm of society. So it's less overt, but the pattern remains. The tyrant here is systematic racism. It's referred to as the white man in several places. The revolution is for justice. It begins by Fani throwing the man who harassed Tish out of the store and Tish standing up to the officer when she says, he's not a boy, officer. In terms of co-opting leaders of the underclass, the victim, Victoria, already feels like all her power has been stripped away and therefore can't exercise the power that she has to see justice done. We don't see the scene where she's presented with the lineup, but I found her line of dialogue really telling. They told me to pick him out, so that's what I did. I picked him out. I got the impression that the cop made it clear who he wanted her to pick. So for the cautionary tale, it seems like tyranny reigns when those with the power to expose hypocrisy are paralyzed with fear. In terms of love, though, on the other hand, I do see this prescriptive tale Love prevails when we choose to love, despite external circumstances, through the simple act of continuing to show up. And it comes down to the two most fundamental aspects of human existence, fear and love. And I guess we really do get to decide how that story ends. That is so great, Kim. I feel the same way. And I am still deciding. Yes. And we'll continue to decide through our actions I was thinking as Valerie was talking about Tish and needing to see that glimmer of hope, I think I felt that moment when she gives birth to her son, right? And she's holding her son and talking to him and loving on him in the bathtub. And I think that was just, you know, she is going to parent him in that way, the same way her parents have parented her through love. And I think that's, at this point, feels like the only thing I can do would be to continue to love others and parent others with love. Right. Yeah. So to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Sarah M., who is taking the Ground Your Craft class. Her question is, how does satire succeed or fail? Is the key to satire in the five-leaf genre clover using absurdism, meta-ness, and genre mashup? Or can one write a satire that works within a single genre? It seems hard to do without writing on the nose. And Jari's going to take this one for us. 
Yeah, thanks, Sarah M., for the question. Sarah is not the only person that has asked us this question about satire. And I'm going to start with a definition of satire, just so we can kind of get a reference to it. So satire uses humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to make fun of a person, idea, or institution to not only entertain, but to convey information that makes people think. So we've looked at a few movies on the round table that have dealt with satire, like The Spy Who Dumped Me and Adaptation, with the latter using absurdism to make the satire quote-unquote work. You know, I feel you can write satire that works in a single genre and not have to rely on absurdism to make it work. You know, one of the best examples of satire out there is the website The Onion. The beauty of what The Onion does is that it makes everyday stories into satire that is something hard to recognize as satire sometimes. And I think that's the art in all this. Also, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes does the same thing in that it brings up deep and moving issues through the lens of Calvin, a creative and rambunctious kid whose ever fateful stuffed animal Hobbes points out the folly in his thinking. And if you want to see how to make fun of marketing and like, you know, what author doesn't want to make fun of marketing, then Tom Fishburne's Marketunist is a great place for that. Tom's work is compelling because he's making fun of himself because he used to be a marketer. Satire is tough to pull off since the reader or viewer has to understand what is being made fun of. And you're right that it can seem on the nose since setting up the sarcasm has to be done perfectly and or, you know, the reader or viewer just won't kind of get it. So, you know, I don't really have any rules of thumb or advice on writing satire. Frankly, I'm really not that good at it. What I can say about satire is that if it's used in the, in the appropriate character and character voice, you know, it should be driving the story forward or provide some truthiness that cannot be conveyed in any other way. You know, and I, I'd also read some masterworks or view some masterworks of satire like Catch-22 or Slaughterhouse-Five or watch The Colbert Report to get a better sense of how they work and, and you know, kind of try it out. And you know what? Satire is kind of like jokes. You, so you, you sort of know you have a good one, you know, when people laugh. So I know that's probably not as detailed as you like or the answers, but uh, I hope it gives you a place to start. Thanks, Jari. If you have a question about what novels and movies do differently or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on editor roundtable podcast and leaving us a voice message. So that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into If Beale Street Could Talk. We hope our discussion has given you food for thought about what kind of novel you want to write. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time and find out what Leslie discovers about action stories on the epic scale when we take on the 1998 mega disaster movie, Deep Impact. Why not give it a look this week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.